Welcome to the Emergency Medicine Cases Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Anton Hellman, bringing you Canada's brightest minds in emergency medicine from EMC Studios in Toronto. EM Cases is part of SHREMI, the Schwartz Reisman Emergency Medicine Institute. That's the nonprofit organization dedicated to improving EM care through high quality research and education. The opinions expressed on this podcast are intended for general information and educational purposes only and should not be used to diagnose, treat, or prevent any medical condition, nor should they be used as a substitute for medical advice from a qualified practicing physician. Unless stated otherwise, the opinions expressed by the hosts or guests are made in their individual capacity, not on behalf of the Institute nor Medicine Cases. Did you feel that? There are a few sounds that can make an emergency doctor's heart rate go as fast as their patient's is going slowly, really, really slowly. But not all bradycardias are created equal. Just as Martin Brady, the UK resident who set the record for the lowest resting heart rate in a healthy individual at 27 beats per minute, and I'm going to say that name one more time so the delicious irony isn't missed, Martin Brady. You just can't make this stuff up. So what's the deal? When should we care about bradycardia? Clearly not all braddies are created equal. How do we figure out when it's due to a medical illness and when it's due to a primary problem? When does atropine work? And when is it just as well to squirt it on the floor? Should transvenous pacing be in our toolbox? Or is this beyond the ED's doc scope? In this podcast, we'll outline a four-step approach to bradycardia and tell you about some exceptions and tricky situations to be aware of. We'll move on to drug and electrical treatment options, diving deep into the literature or lack thereof, and offer you some procedural tips and tricks to boot. And to help us through this, I'd like to welcome back our world-renowned electrophysiologist and cardiology researcher, clinician, and educator, who you've probably heard before on our Tacky Dysrhythmias episode with Almamatu, the eloquent and totally hilarious Dr. Paul Dorian. Welcome back, Dr. Dorian. Thank you so much. I'm delighted to be back with you. And as contrasted to last time, I'm going to be speaking very slowly today. <laughs> all right. And new to EM cases, but probably not new to your ears because she's all over the FOMED world. EM educator extraordinaire, chair of education for the Department of EM at Cook County Hospital in Chicago, EM doc, Dr. Tarlin Hadaity. Welcome, Dr. Hadaity. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. In contrast, I will maintain my usual pressured speech pattern. (laughs) All right. Now, the general approach to bradycardia that we're going to dig into in this podcast is the following four-stemmed approach. So first, we need to decide if the patient is stable or unstable, and we'll discuss what that means exactly when it comes to bradycardia, and if there's an immediate need to fix the heart rate. Second, determine whether or not the patient's symptomatic as a result of the bradycardia, or if all they have is a low heart rate without any symptoms related to that low heart rate. Third, we'll figure out where the location of the problem is. Is it the SA node? Is it the AV node? Or is it the Hisperkinji? This will help guide management, of course. And then fourth, we need to assess for reversible causes that, if treated appropriately, might preclude the need completely for any pacing or atropine or epinephrine or the like. And you might be doing all these four steps concurrently, depending on the case. And talking about cases, let's jump into our first case. A 36-year-old woman rolls into your resuscitation bay at 3.30 a.m. on a Saturday night with EMS who tells you that she was found down, alone, in a snowbank, in a city park 20 minutes ago. Her GCS has been about eight since they found her, and she's maintaining normal, clear-sounding respirations. She has a decent, open peripheral IV running normal saline. BP is 100 on 40. Respiratory rate is 14. Oxygen saturation is 95% on room air, temp is 35, and heart rate is 38. Cap glucose is normal, and the ECG shows what looks like either a second-degree heart block or a third-degree heart block. You're not sure, and there's no Osborne waves that you can discern. EMS is able to ID her, but there's no record of her on your EMR. So, What are your thoughts on this case so far? 
So my initial approach is going to be CABs from the beginning. I want to get another line started. I want the patient on a monitor um, as we're transferring the patient from the paramedic gurney to the hospital gurney, I want the pacer pads placed on the patient, knowing that the heart rate is already low at 38 from the field. And with that low GCS, I really need to ass- assess the airway and determine if I need to take the airway or not. You know, a GCS of eight doesn't necessarily necessitate an airway, but I definitely need to evaluate that relatively quickly and make a decision. I'm going to need a rectal temp or a core temp of some sort, and then I'm going to run through my primary survey. So can I think about, you know, what might be causing this bradycardia? Um, Is there something that I can reverse immediately? Is there a backstory that I'm going to be able to get from either the paramedics or any other bystanders or family that might be able to help me and then just dig in? Pretty much exactly the way I'd approach the patient. Dr. Dorian, from uh, your cardiologist's perspective? The questions I would ask myself is the following. A heart rate of 38 is generally not too, too bad. We have to remember that a heart rate of 38 in an otherwise relatively healthy person would be generally not associated with symptoms. Uh, Healthy young individuals, typically when they fall asleep, have heart rates in the 40s. Athletic type individuals have heart rates in the 30s, typically. So it would be quite unusual to have depressed level of consciousness from bradycardia alone. We know that hypothermia, of course, I'm assuming we're talking about a northern climate here. The closer you are, excuse me, to Winnipeg, the more likely you are to fall into a snowbank. Uh, So right away, we have a geographic diagnosis. Uh, But apart from that, hypothermia by itself can cause bradycardia. We see this typically in induced hypothermia in patients after cardiac arrest. So we, we know this quite well. But it rarely, if ever, causes a significant hemodynamic compromise. If the patient has heart block as opposed to just sinus bradycardia, and just from the observation that there's depressed level of consciousness out of keeping with what you might expect from somebody with bradycardia would make me suspect that there's something else going on, another metabolic, toxic, overdose, but it would be pretty uncommon to have a depressed level of consciousness from a heart rate of 38 by itself. I wouldn't be terribly alarmed by the bradycardia, I would be much more concerned about the other things that are, might be going on with this patient. Yeah, well put. So we've just touched on this next question a little bit. In our general approach, we're talking first stable versus unstable, but sometimes that's not exactly clear what stable versus unstable means. In the context of the patient who's bradycardic, how do we determine whether the patient is unstable, requiring sort of immediate change in their heart rate or fixing of their heart rate, increasing their heart rate, or whether they're actually stable and we can breathe and take a moment? So we rely pretty heavily on the vital signs, so things like blood pressure, respiratory rate, heart rate. But all of these are just numbers. So we have to take it in the context of how the patient is presenting and the patient themselves. So kind of the first step is taking a step back to our basic cardiac physiology that we learned um, in medical school. And as you remember, cardiac output is dependent on two kind of big parameters. One is the heart rate and the other is stroke volume. And so we'd like to think that if you decrease the heart rate, then the stroke volume would sort of reflexively go up to maintain that cardiac output. But that's just not the case. So unfortunately, as the heart rate decreases, the cardiac output is going to decrease as well. And so that may manifest as decreased blood pressure, which makes things easy. That's a hard finding. And I know, okay, now I have bradycardia and hypotension, particularly in the context of a patient who has altered mental status, Those are hard signs of instability. So that makes things a little bit easy. But the decreased cardiac output is also going to decrease perfusion to organs that really, really need that oxygen. So the brain, the heart. So that's when we see the altered mental status. You see things like syncope. Patients may present with chest pain or dyspnea. So these are also signs of instability or in the setting of bradycardia, potentially unstable bradycardia. 
There's the concept of occult bradycardic shock. And essentially what happens is you get this vasoconstrictor response that allows your blood pressure and your mental status to remain intact, which is great. But unfortunately, it can fool us as the medical providers. So you have to rely on other parameters to identify these patients. Maybe, you know, that low cardiac output and they're shocky, but they're maintaining their blood pressure and you're not going to identify it. The exam is going to be really important here. So, you know, are they pale? Are their extremities very cool? Are they having poor urine output? You're going to need to dig a little bit more to identify that. Overt bradycardic shock is honestly much easier. So you're not going to get fooled by these patients. They're going to be hypotensive. They're going to be altered. They're going to present with signs and symptoms of shock. Absolutely. And and Dr. Dorian, understanding this way of sorting out unstable versus stable related to that is whether you need to immediately increase the heart rate right now. How do you make that decision in general in the patient? The challenge for clinicians is what do you do when the blood pressure is normal, not what do you do when the blood pressure is low? Bradycardia by itself, in the absence of anything else, rarely causes this configuration of normal blood pressure and shock. So bradycardia, when it's the only problem, it's generally pretty obvious. Heart rate may be 35 or 30, the patient's feeling unwell, their blood pressure is low-ish, but not terribly low. Surprisingly, sometimes you can have heart rates in the 20s with blood pressure uh, sort of reasonably maintained. And in that situation, it's not an immediate life-threatening emergency, although clearly if you have heart rates of 30 or less or the patient's symptomatic, you want to intervene a bit earlier. So it's it's a combination, if you like, of the observed rate uh, and of the pulsatile pressure, which you can feel just by taking the patient's pulse and of the measured blood pressure. And obviously these other factors we've talked about, which is um, skin turgor, mentation, uh, urine output, basically how the patient looks in general. And age has something to do with it as well. In a 35-year-old with bradycardia, generally speaking, they're much more able to maintain cardiac output because they generally have normal cardiac function as opposed to a 75-year, 80-year-old with stiff blood vessels where the bradycardia might, might be much more likely to cause symptoms. That's a little bit about when you need to take action immediately and unstable versus stable. The next thing I want to talk about is you know, assuming that they are stable, we want to decide whether their symptoms are actually due to the bradycardia or from something else. How do you actually sort out whether or not the symptoms are a result of the bradycardia or not? The first kinds of things I think about, particularly if it's a younger, healthier patient. So some of this is kind of what I think of, I call Bayesian thinking. We have to look at pretest probabilities. If you have a 30-year-old or a 25-year-old with bradycardia, it's much more likely that this is a reflex-mediated or toxin or overdose-mediated bradycardia. If you have an 85-year-old or an older patient with a prior history of heart disease, many of whom are on medications, then the context is obviously different. So your pretest probabilities are going to be very different. So it depends a bit on the situation. But let's take a younger sort of healthier patient to start with. If I see somebody with profound bradycardia, I'm going to ask myself, do they have anything in their symptoms or their history to suggest that the bradycardia is caused by vagal excess, dehydration, uh, nausea, uh, sort of a prior history of uh, reflex-mediated or vasovagal type situation? Have we just recently come at them with a large-bore needle? And you can get very profound bradycardia, and those patients are often pale, nauseated. They're very pale because they have subcutaneous vasoconstriction. They're often also hypotensive, both because of central vasodilatation as well as bradycardia, each of which can cause hypotension. So in the sort of younger type of patient, the symptoms that I'm looking for would be things that go along with vagal excess. In an older individuals, I might be looking for things that I typically see in older individuals with bradycardia, probably the most common of which would be underlying sinus node disease plus some medications that they have been administered, often for hypertension, but for cardiac disease, most commonly beta blockers or calcium channel blockers. And it's that context which will tell me to what extent the symptoms are caused by the bradycardia or perhaps from some other reason. 
I think the listeners need to kind of be aware of the fact that down to heart rates in the mid to low 30s, even older patients with a pre-existing heart disease rarely have severe hemodynamic compromise. So it's pretty uncommon to have somebody with a heart rate of 35 or even down to, let's say, about 30 to have severe syncope unless there's other things going on like vasodilatation like I explained. So a slow heart rate by itself, and you gave the example of our colleague uh, Brady somebody or other, of course we now think of Tom Brady, Super Bowl fame, but the example I use with all my patients is that Bjorn Borg, allegedly our famous Iceman tennis player, had a resting heart rate of 32. And this was at a time when he was one of the best tennis players on the planet. So young, healthy people can maintain resting heart rates in the 30s. We see lots in a cardiology practice and an electrophysiology practice of elderly patients that have bradycardia at rest into the 30s that are nearly asymptomatic, if not completely asymptomatic. So obviously, not everything is, is made equal, but a heart rate by itself in the 30s generally does not cause severe hemodynamic compromise unless there's additional factors going on, vasodilatation, negative inotropic effect, underlying disease, et cetera. Beautiful. That that clears up nicely how to ask and assess for the symptoms, whether they're related to the bratty or not, how to figure out if they're unstable or stable when you actually need to do something right now. So generally speaking, it's not the actual heart rate that matters so much, but the symptoms. That being said, progressive bradycardia or worsening bradycardia, so the heart rate at first glance is 50, but then it drops to 40 and then 30, that's a peri-arrest sign. And once you're below about 30 in most people, the heart rate really has trouble getting that cardiac output to a decent enough level to perfuse organs adequately. That's bad as well. The next thing I want to talk about in our four-stemmed approach is the location of the problem. So, of course, there's the location of the problem completely outside of the heart, uh, which we've mentioned a few things, toxicological causes, et cetera. But when we're talking about cardiac problems causing bradycardia, we've got the sinus node, we've got the AV node, we've got the Hisperkinji system. So, Dr. Dorian, can you review for us the types of bradycardia, their anatomical locations, and how that will direct your treatment? That's an extremely important point, and thank you for raising that. I'm going to start simple and then make it a little more complicated, if I may. The simple thing that the practitioner needs to figure out for the reasons of ease of management largely, and also cause, is the following. Is the bradycardia problem caused by something that is south of the AV node, meaning in the Hisperkinji system, the highways of the heart, so to speak? Or is it something that is anatomically in the atrium, which would be either the sinus node or the AV node? We'll talk in a minute about how you do this, but the reason that this is important is that in most cases, sinus node or AV node problems are treated with watchful waiting or atropine or sympathetic activation. On the other hand, even coffee, I have patients that I sent home with a heart rate of 35 on six cups of coffee a day because I think it's going to improve. I'll talk about that later on. That sounds rather crazy. They come back to your office complaining that they can't sleep? <laughs> uh, well, no, they come back complaining that lattes are now $6 at Starbucks, but that's a separate issue. Uh, the, the really important thing is that distal disease in the Hisperkinji system or distally. So as for example, in complete AV block caused by distal disease, these patients do not respond very well to atropine, to uh, sympathetic stimulation. Most of the time, they will need some external way of increasing their heart rate, either very high dose uh, sympathetic stimulation, often ineffective. They'll need either transcutaneous pacing or transvenous pacing. So you can pretty much immediately decide whether this is relatively easily treated, rarely life-threatening, which is sinus node and AV node disease, or more difficult to treat and often life-threatening, which is distal disease. Now, the way to look at it on the ECG is the following. If the QRS complexes are skinny, less than 120 milliseconds, take a breather, it's going to be fine. That's the only thing you need to remember. Skinny QRS equals proximal disease 
99.99% of the time. A fat QRS, bundle branch block, it gets a little more complicated. You can have junctional or AV nodal, I'm using the term synonymously, escape rhythms, even with complete AV block or sinus bradycardia for that matter, and a wide QRS if the patient has coexisting bundle branch block. So if the QRSs are wide, you have to do a little more digging and look at the ECG. But if the QRS is narrow, then that patient will respond to sympathetic stimulation or vagal withdrawal, like atropine, for example, most of the time. There will be uh, exceptions. We may be talking about them later on, but by and large, that's the way to think about it. Skinny QRS, proximal disease, almost all the time. That's when you can relax a bit. When we're getting into the wide QRS, that's when we need to put our thinking caps on. And, and by the way, just to advertise what I hope we're going to talk about later on is the, in my opinion, the relative uselessness of looking at Mobitz type 2 AV block as a diagnostic entity. It's unhelpful. So if we get a chance later on, we'll talk about the Dorian approach, which is a lot simpler. Forget about Mobitz. Nice German physiologist, very smart guy. Forget about Dr. Wenkeback, brilliant doctor, but not relevant to practical management. Ah, I'm intrigued. All right, we'll get into that a little bit later. Um, you know, emergency physicians often jump in and want to do something immediately. Let's talk a little bit about the patients who you actually don't want to do anything except maybe give them a, a glass of water. So you can guess what I'm about to talk about. You know, the 25-year-old guy comes in, very vagal-sounding syncopal episode, you, you know, and you do an ECG and it shows sinus bradyhe at 30 beats a minute. Uh, you go see him, he looks pale, and you look up at the monitor, you know, you might even see some long pause, a five, 10 second long pause, uh, and then he's back into sinus Brady. So this is this is quite obviously the vaguely mediated, otherwise healthy person. When do clinicians seem to get this wrong? When do they seem to jump in and start giving treatments to patients with vaguely mediated syncope? and bradycardia who don't need anything except a bit of time? Well, fortunately, uh, these symptoms and the observations of bradycardia are often transient. So I think it's less the eMERGE docs than it is the cardiologists or the consultants who get sort of inappropriately all excited, even to the extent of necessarily putting in pacemakers. I should tell you that the record uh, bradycardic pause I've seen in a healthy 18-year-old Holter technician, believe it or not, uh, who had a Holter on because of dizzy spells. She came into the eMERGE, this is at our hospital some decade ago, and said, I feel nauseated. And she had one of her typical syncopal spells, which she'd had many times before, and had a 61-second asystolic pause. This is... And this happens all the time. Remember, when you're, when you're talking to your patients or some of the audience, I personally have fainted a number of times, which is why I didn't originally want to become a surgeon because when I would see blood, I'd get all nauseated. This is a long story that I tell the medical students and it's boring, so I'm not going to tell it. Uh, but in any event, uh, symptomatic bradycardia and syncope, I should say, in a young, healthy person is often associated with very prolonged pauses. And we just don't know about it because we don't often record it unless it's by accident in somebody who's in front of you, the emergency room. So in the context of young, healthy person, pale, nauseated, frightened, uh, anxious, which is why, by the way, you want to put a a nice happy face on and give them a glass of water and joke around, do not make the patients anxious because if they get anxious, then their bradycardia and hypotension will become even worse. Typically, this is transient and it's easily treated just with fluids and tincture of time. Often, these patients are dehydrated depending on the context and they may need a lot of fluids. But here, the, the treatment is, of course, reassurance, and the duration of the pause, in my opinion, is irrelevant. It is common for young, healthy people to have episodic, severe, short-term bradycardia, heart rate in the 20s for 15, 20 minutes at a time, pauses 30 seconds or longer. And 
Of course, these patients may need to be evaluated by somebody who's familiar with this syndrome because we occasionally recommend as definitive treatment uh, pacing in these patients, but only if their quality of life is severely impaired. The point here is you don't have to jump in with any particular treatment. Well, there's long and then there's 60 seconds. My goodness, that's impressive. A whole minute. (laughs) (laughs) I like it. You know, you can read War and Peace in a minute if you read really fast. (laughs) That's impressive. Makes me tachycardic thinking about a 60 second. Yeah, don't get tachycardic because that, of course, makes bradycardia worse. The important thing to remember, of course, is that in these young patients, that anything that makes them anxious or upset will increase sympathetic tone, which then in turn will make ventricular contractility go up. And particularly if their ventricles are contracting with low blood volume, they basically get ventricular collapse. This is the believed, the, the assumed pathophysiology of vasovagal syncope, some of which is heritable, by the way. Often these patients have a family history of syncope, first-degree relatives who fainted. There's now some t- um, uh, candidate genes, believe it or not, for this particular syndrome. And so anxiety, increased catechol levels, increased blood pressure causes reflex uh, bradycardia and vasodilatation. So if you alarm these patients, of course, they'll get worse. Tell jokes. And they have to be funny. Otherwise, it's a problem. <laughs> I, I'm sure you have no problem with that part of it, Dr. Dorian. Um, no dad jokes. <laughs> all right. So that's uh, an amazing explanation of the breadth of vaguely mediated sinus Brady that we can see. Let's talk about junctional bradycardia. I mean, and we're, we're going to go through all the different kinds of brady dysrhythmias. What are the usual causes and treatment of junctional bradycardia? Dr. Dorian? Probably the most common situation we see is uh, patients that have, if you like, poisoning of the sinus node with excess drug effect, beta blockers, calcium blockers, digoxin, a little less common. We rarely see ditch toxicity these days, fortunately, because it's less often used. The doses are often lower. And when digoxin poisons the sinus node, it often causes junctional tachycardia or a more rapid than normal escape junctional rhythm together with heart block. So bradycardia is a little less common. We see this very commonly in the hospital following cardiac surgery where there's damage to the AV node. Typically after valve surgery, we see it after a transcutaneous aortic valve replacement. Typically that happens in the hospital, but now that patients are going home right away, you can get late AV block. I should say that the anatomical region that is damaged by the transcatheter valve, which is a great great procedure, by the way, these are typically older patients that are a little bit fragile, uh, but they frequently get AV block but the escape rhythm may sometimes be narrow or junctional, and in which case, uh, often with left bundle branch configuration, because they get a procedure-induced right bundle branch block, uh, and they come in with a junctional bradycardia caused by the surgical complication. So drugs, recent cardiac surgery would be common situations. Those would be the, the ones I would think about. Inferior wall myocardial infarction, which we can talk about some examples. That's a very special kind of situation, but you frequently can see inferior, especially with right ventricular extension, myocardial infarction or true posterior myocardial infarctions where the patient has heart block and comes in with junctional bradycardia. And now a word from a sponsor. Are you tired of the same old ER work situation? Do you feel like your dreams of being part of a high-performance team have faded? Do you wish that you lived and worked in a city surrounded by endless nature and waterfront? Well, look no further. North Bay Regional Health Center is a shining star in Ontario's emergency medicine world. This department is on the cutting edge of emergency medicine with an excellent group of physicians and the latest and greatest SIMS educational opportunities and ED technology. Join this great eMERGE at a Level 3 Trauma Center just three hours north of Toronto. It could be just what you need. We'll get to the higher degree AV blocks a little bit later. I want to talk about sort of the fourth part of our four-stemmed approach, and that is assessing for the secondary causes. And many of these secondary causes, you won't need to reach for atropine or epinephrine or pacing or anything. Sometimes it's just a matter of treating the underlying cause, um, or you're doing both in parallel. So. Let's dig into the differential. Now, most textbooks have this long list of causes of bradycardia that are like two pages long that aren't particularly useful to us in the ED. 
how do you think through the reversible secondary causes of bradycardia? So you haven't memorized the two pages of of differentials like I have? No. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean those are those are uh, great for a textbook, but certainly not something I can retain in my brain for for an entirety of a career. Um, the good news is this is where it pays to be a curious person and want to dig into the why and you know asking some questions of the patient digging into the records a little bit can really reveal what's going on so the good news is the vast majority of bradycardias are secondary so it's from something else it's not a primary cardiac issue and so if we can get to what this underlying problem is you're not going to need things like atropine and and you know epi and things like that if you can just manage the underlying issue you're going to correct the bradycardia if there's actually something to correct or or a problem related to the bradycardia so in the emergency department there are kind of a, a short list of things that you need to immediately rule out and identify and treat so that they don't progress to further badness. So I think the one that we all keep at the forefront is potassium. And potassium, so pesky, um, and and really the myocardium gets very fussy when there is any sort of derangement with, with potassium. And so hyperkalemia specifically is the one thing that I want to make sure I identify and that I treat immediately. So that's my number one thing. And then the next part is going to be ischemia. And so you know, the EKG is going to be helpful. The story is going to be helpful. So hyper-K, ischemia, number one, number two. And then you're going to want to get into the drug history. So what medications are they on? Have they been taking the appropriate doses of their medications? Um, is there any sort of underlying issue that could potentiate the effects of the medications that they are hopefully taking appropriately? Was there potentially an intentional ingestion of a medication? Maybe the patient isn't on a beta blocker or calcium channel blocker, but they intentionally took it and had access to it. So getting that history is going to be important. And then lastly, you know, when we see bradycardia and you see altered mental status or you see bradycardia and the patient is maybe a little off but complaining of a severe headache, then it may not be the bradycardia that's the issue. It's actually something CNS related, something central. And anything that increases that ICP could drive up the blood pressure and drive down the heart rate. And there may even be a clue on the electrocardiogram. So, Classically, it's the deep symmetric T-wave inversions in those anterior leads that kind of gives the clinician a clue that something is going on in the brain. So those are my sort of top four things that I want to make sure I rule out immediately. Hyperkalemia, ischemia, an ingestion or a toxicity, and anything going on with the CNS. Beautiful. I love it. So those are kind of the big four immediate life threats. Then, of course, there's the whole other long list. Again, from an emergency perspective, what else on that list, you know, after you've at least thought about those first four and addressed them, what else are you starting to, to think about that don't necessarily require immediate treatment? So, you know, here in Chicago, um, and it's, you know, when it gets cold, hypothermia becomes a big issue here. And we have several cases with classic ECGs that are just beautiful. And they come in and this is where the core temperature or that rectal temperature is going to be so critical. But typically they come in, they feel cold and they're bradycardic and you put two and two together. The key with hypothermia is to you know, ask that why of why did they end up outside exposed to the cold? So typically there's something else going on, whether as we mentioned before, it's ethanol or Maybe they had some sort of cardiac event and they collapsed outside, exposing them to the cold weather. But you need to dig into why the exposure happened in the first place. Then there's thyroid disease. So hypothyroidism that progresses to myxedema coma is another example of something that can drive that heart rate down. They may be hypotensive as well, but hopefully, you know, there's other physical exam findings that will lead you to that potential diagnosis. Certain infections can cause the heart rate to drop. And so we know things like Lyme disease can cause bradycardias, but 
you know, other things like malaria, typhoid, you want to keep those kind of on a short list and maybe a travel history may lead you to that potential diagnosis. And we know that kind of there is this nocturnal drop in the heart rate. Um, I know I have that. And so I got one of these handy dandy, you know, heart rate monitors that that's on my watch now. And so I can see kind of how low my heart rate drops at night. And I get down into the 20s at night, which is was pretty shocking. And I had no idea. Yeah. When I want to make myself feel good about my uh, resting heart rate, I check it like the second I wake up in the morning and I'm yeah. like, oh yeah, great. My resting heart rate's 50. I'm in great shape. I'm in perfect <laughs> shape. I don't need to work out today. <laughs> So. I've, I've, got, I've got good news and bad news for you. The good news is you probably are in terrific shape. The bad news is you still have to work out tonight. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, sorry, we, we digress. So, we had the big four um, and sort of the lesser four are hypothermia, myxedema coma, infection, which I think is something, you know, we, we don't really think about. It's definitely worth asking a, a travel history and sleep apnea and sort of noc- nocturnal. Anything else to add to um, the stuff that we really should be picking up in the emergency department, Dr. Dorian? The only thing I would add to that wonderful summary is that often it's multifactorial. So a typical scenario is an 83-year-old patient who's been on beta blockers for 20 years at some moderate dose, not overdosed, and they gradually develop for pharmacokinetic reasons, their elimination of the of the beta blocker slows down. So there's an accumulation of beta blocker effect in the blood. They have underlying sinus node disease because they're older. And as they become more and more bradycardic, they develop hypoperfusion of the kidneys and the potassium levels start to go up. They don't have to have a potassium of seven or even a potassium of six and a half. You can have just a slight hyperkalemia with mild renal dysfunction, but then the, the the clue here is that it's not just the hyperkalemia that's the problem here. It's the combination of slight hyperkalemia, potassium might be 5.1, and excess beta blocker effect combined with underlying sinus node disease caused by age. And these patients gradually go from a heart rate of 40 to 38 to 32 to 30 to 28, and they finally come in sort of looking very poorly. That segues perfectly into what I think you might be talking about, which uh, has been referred to as BRASH syndrome. BRASH standing for bradycardia, renal failure, AV blocker, shock, and hyperkalemia. This is something that I've probably seen and missed many times. (laughs) Although, thankfully, I know how to treat uh, hyperkalemia pretty well, so I probably fixed that problem, and then I'm sure the intern has figured out that it was BRASH syndrome. So, Dr. Haydayidi, can you tell us kind of what we need to know about this BRASH syndrome besides what Dr. Dorian just described to us? Yeah, so this is that diagnosis that you start listing all the problems as you're getting ready to admit the patient and you you know you type out bradycardia and then you type out hyperkalemia and then you type out renal failure and then you start <laughs> kind of start putting it together you're like, "Huh, okay, maybe this is BRASH syndrome." So, kind of at the heart of BRASH syndrome is the renal failure and then this AV blockade. And then the things that happen after that are sort of related to these two core issues. So essentially, the patient is taking an AV blocker, and they're taking it at the normal dose. They're taking it at the prescribed dose. There isn't anything sort of toxic happening here. And then something happens to the renal function, whether it's they're on a nephrotoxic agent, whether it's just the gradual decline of their renal function due to their other medical problems, maybe they're diabetic, um, underlying hypertension, whatever the case may be. And so then you end up with the bradycardia plus this renal failure, hyperkalemia, and then they end up in a shock state because of the combination of all these issues together. And so that is where the brash syndrome comes from. Cool. Hopefully I'll pick that up next time, be able to put it all together. (laughs) I want to go over a few more specific syndromes and entities and talk just a little bit about kind of the common causes of them and any different approaches to treatment than usual. So Dr. Dorian, let's talk a little bit about the tachybrady syndrome and sick sinus syndrome. This is something that I have to admit, you know, I'm looking at the ECG and, you know, I, I'm not sure what the ECG is telling me. I know it's bratty 
and they, they end up getting admitted because they're not stable for whatever reason. And then I find out later, oh yeah, they had sick sinus syndrome. It's not the kind of diagnosis that I'm making often right off the bat in the emergency department. Can you give us a sense of who gets sick sinus syndrome and tachybrady syndrome? Like what's what's the pathophysiology there? And how do we approach it differently to say someone with a with a third degree heart block or a, a Mobitz one or whatever. That, that extremely important uh, points uh, and and uh, some clarifications are required. The terms sick sinus syndrome and tachybrady syndrome are used interchangeably. Sick sinus syndrome is not a very useful term because it does tell you something about the sinus node, but it doesn't tell you anything about the AV node. What we frequently see as an empirical observation, and this is typically in older individuals, is they have some sort of atrial disease which involves the sinus node, sinus bradycardia. It involves the atrium, which results in atrial fibrillation, uh, and it tends to not involve the AV node. So the typical scenario is a person with intermittent atrial fibrillation. When they're in AFib, they often have a rapid ventricular response, which is what leads to the problem, as I'll come to in a minute. So when they're in AFib, the ventricular rate is fast. When they're not in AFib, they're in sinus rhythm, the sinus rate is slowed. So this is sinus node disease and atrial disease, but in fact, normal AV nodal function. When the patient goes into atrial fibrillation, the atrium is going at 500 beats per minute. The 500 impulses per minute all penetrate the sinus node and keep it asleep, so to speak. Every time the sinus node wakes up, it's pummeled by another atrial depolarization. So the sinus node is kind of kept suppressed. We call this overdrive suppression of the sinus node. When the atrial fibrillation stops spontaneously, as it is wont to do, then the sinus node has to recover. And that, you might think of it as kind of sinus node recovery time. In a person with sinus node disease, that can last three, five, seven, ten 10 seconds. You rarely, if ever, get sinus arrest lasting minutes. So these patients don't die, but they can fall down and faint and hurt themselves and come in with injury. If you get a history from the patient, what you might see is a patient with atrial fibrillation who tells you, Doc, I get these rapid palpitations, and then, and I feel my heart going quickly, and I don't feel well, and then I get really dizzy or I faint. And the question then to ask them is, when you come to, or when your dizzy spell is done, how do you feel? And the patient often says, I feel okay. And that's a signal that the, what their, that their symptom or their syncope or their severe sinus bradycardia is the transition from atrial fibrillation into sinus bradycardia. So we call this conversion pauses. It's a great term because it's very meaningful. A conversion pause is a pause that happens after the conversion of atrial fibrillation into sinus rhythm. The problem, of course, is that many of these patients are put on antiarrhythmics and drugs to treat the atrial fibrillation, rate control agents, calcium channel blockers, beta blockers most commonly, and that tends to worsen the sinus node disease. And the drugs that are being used is because they tend to have rapid atrioventricular conduction. That all makes perfect sense. And the interesting thing about that is I've always taught my residents that atrial fibrillation by itself almost never causes syncope. But based on what you're telling me, it sounds like if someone comes into the emergency department with atrial fibrillation and they have syncope, you really should think about this tachybrady syndrome. A hundred percent. Now, you, if you see it, of course, that's easy. But if I see a patient with AFib who complains of dizzy spells or syncope, especially if their resting ECG is sinus bradycardia, that's the thing to think about. And what's really important for those of us that deal with bradycardia and pacemakers and so on is that it is dangerous to put these patients on the usual treatment, which is a beta blocker, calcium blocker, or any antiarrhythmic for fear of worsening the underlying sinus node disease. So we commonly end up in these patients putting in a pacemaker in quotation marks here prophylactically. It's not really prophylactic because they've already fainted, but if we're going to start a, a, a drug that slows them down during atrial fibrillation, they're sinus pauses might get worse. Wow. That is an amazing pitfall that emergency doctors should know about.
So we've talked about some of these very particular syndromes, the brash syndrome, tachybrady syndrome. The other thing I want us to think about, which sometimes throws a curveball into bradycardia, is left bundle branch block. So Dr. Dorian, let's say you've got a 55-year-old man who's never been to a doctor, who comes in with multiple episodes of presyncope, no associated symptoms, but the ECG shows say a sinus rate of 100, but with a left bundle branch block escape at 30 beats per minute. How should we approach the symptomatic patient with a new left bundle branch block and bradycardia in the ED in general? Like, What's the trick with these patients? How, how do we get fooled by these patients sometimes? It's an important scenario to know about. So here we're talking about third degree AV block, what we would call distal block. If I may just review very briefly for the listeners, if you have sinus tachycardia and complete AV block and a fat escape rhythm, that's usually bad news. That means you have disease of the distal conduction system. And that is the exact opposite of sinus bradycardia with narrow QRS complexes, or even sinus bradycardia in a patient who happens to have idiopathic bundle branch block. But if the context is sinus bradycardia, some of the P waves are conducted and others aren't, that's generally less of a concern. So let's get back to our case here. We have reason to believe that the patient has complete AV block. And the reason that we believe that this is distal AV block is when the sinus rate is fast, then the distal conduction system just can't handle all these many impulses and basically puts up a break, and then the patient depends on their escape pacemaker. There's kind of two flavors of this. There's idiopathic AV block, which is a little bit uncommon in a younger individual. Of course, this can happen in older individuals, typically hypertensive, diabetic, uh, age uh, sort of 70 to 80. Uh, In a younger patient with complete AV block, These are unusual, but we think about them. The most common situation is organic disease of the conduction system. So related to your point at the top of the podcast, bradycardia plus a wide complex is really when you got to stop and think and maybe call Dr. Dorian. (laughs) Exactly. I may be be on the golf course, in which case I won't answer. Now that's a classic cardiology answer. Yeah, yeah, I said that. Actually, to be, to, you know, in full disclosure, I'm much more likely to be on the tennis court, but I don't answer from there either. <laughs> okay, just just for the listeners' benefit here, Doctor Dorian's probably one of the hardest working guys I know, so uh, he's of course joking. One last rhythm related to bradycardia that we should really be aware of is uh, torsade de point. That's how we say it in Canada. As they say in the U.S., torsades de point, I think it is. Is that how you say it, Charlie? Just, just torsade. We don't even mess with the de Just torsade. Okay. <laughs> it does sound a little bit goofy, I have to say. <laughs> Let's just call it torsade. Dr. Dorian, what is the relationship between bradycardia and torsade? The original description of torsade was in an elderly patient with complete heart block. Interestingly enough, uh, those of us who deal with this all the time see not infrequently the presence of torsade, which I would define as the coexistence of usually all of the following. In this particular context, AV block, there's of course other causes of torsade, which is drugs that prolong the QT interval. But if you have AV block associated with what we call pause-dependent polymorphic ventricular tachycardia, in this case, there's pauses because the heart rate is very slow. The QT interval is invariably long. Now, it's going to be long for two reasons. One is that the patient is bradycardic, which by itself prolongs the QT because we know the QT is related to heart rate. And some individuals, for reasons that are not clear, develop more QT prolongation when they are going slowly than other patients, often with coexisting hypokalemia and hypomagnesemia. Patient may be on a diuretic or they may have some malnutrition or there may be other sort of reasons why they have hypomagnesemia and hypokalemia. The patients come in with recurrent dizziness or recurrent syncope. And you look at the monitor and what you see is sinus rhythm with AV block, often with not incredibly severe bradycardia. Heart rate may be 35 or 40, you're not too alarmed. And then what you see is short runs, three, five, eight, ten 10 beats of 
let's call it ugly looking polymorphic ventricular tachycardia, where there may or may not be twisting of the points, but all of these runs are polymorphic. They, it sort of looks ugly. I think the listeners will know exactly what I mean. The, the QRS complexes don't resemble each other. And typically speaking, the first beat of the tachycardia is on a delayed QT. So the interval between the last, the last escape beat and the first beat is, let's say, three big squares on your ECG, 600 milliseconds. So the QT interval is long. And you've got this delayed PVC, which ushers in a run of polymorphic ventricular tachycardia. And I just need to see one of those in a patient with heart block and bradycardia, and I get alarmed because many of those runs will degenerate into ventricular fibrillation. And then the treatment, of course, is to increase the heart rate. Just the last point here is that this, for reasons that I absolutely don't understand, is extremely uncommon in sinus bradycardia. So bradycardia-related torsad is uncommon in sinus bradycardia, but it is not so uncommon in AV block-related bradycardia. Amazing. So, you know, I think from an emergency perspective, you know, for us, torsad is all about the QT prolongation, and that's all we really think about. This is really interesting that it's often related to an AV block. All right. Now, uh, Dr. Dorian, you had alluded to your take on MOBITS 1 and MOBITS 2 in that we really shouldn't be thinking of it as MOBITS 1 and MOBITS 2. Can you uh, expand on the Dorian approach to second-degree heart block? Sure. So so the question I ask myself is, I, I'm not suggesting that the, the categorization is is wrong. It's just incomplete. The question I think that is relevant for the practitioner is, is this AV block, that we're talking about second degree AV block, is this AV block in the AV node or is it distal in the Hisperkinji system? So Mobitz type one second degree AV block, so-called Wenkeback, is almost always proximal. There's very rare instances, we probably don't wanna get into it because I don't wanna mislead the audience. One in 200 patients will have uh, basically distal block where you can still have Wenkeback periodicity, but it's unbelievably rare. So if you have Wenkeback periodicity, that is proximal block. On the other hand, you can have high-grade AV block, two or three non-conducted P waves, which is still in the AV node. This is with vasovagal syncope, for example, or with drugs that affect the AV node, especially at night. These patients get progressive bradycardia, high vagal tone, and get uh, at 2 a.m., maybe Wenkeback AV block, but at 2.15 a.m., middle of the night, they get three non-conducted P waves. That we call high-grade AV block, but that still could be proximal. And the clue there, it's associated with high vagal tone, middle of the night, and sinus bradycardia preceding the AV block. Another scenario where the Mobitz is unhelpful is so-called two-to-one AV block, two full colon one. We have two P waves for every QRS. That could be distal AV block, or it could be a type of Wenkeback. Remember, the definition of Wenkeback is where there's one more P wave than every QRS. So three full, little, three full colon two could be Wenkeback. Ten full colon nine could be Wenkeback. But two full colon one could also be, it's not typically Wenkeback, it's two to one AV block, but that's still a proximal AV block. And again, the clue is, sinus bradycardia or sinus slowing preceding the AV block and narrow QRS conducted complexes. And then the first conducted beat following the block could be three non-conducted P waves or two to one AV block is the PR interval is shorter than the other PR intervals. That's all a clue that this is proximal AV block. So this is what I look for. Winky back, usually proximal, but you can have these other kinds of AV block, which is also proximal. And this is treated with increasing the heart rate by any means, whether it's removing the bradycardic influence with atropine, uh, with uh, um, isoproternal, or any sympathetic stimulation. When it's distal AV block, typically speaking, when this is the opposite, instead of heart rate slowing prior to the AV block, this is heart rate acceleration 
prior to the AV block. So you can still have two to one AV block, so two P waves for every QRS. But if the context here is sinus acceleration and a wide complex conducted beat, this is much more likely distal block. And these patients do not respond to atropine and sympathetic stimulation and often need pacing. They're often going to need permanent pacing. To simplify all that, really it comes down to whether it's wide or narrow. Yes, if I may, wide or narrow. If it's narrow, it's going to be proximal. If it's wide, then we look for the prior heart rate history. If it's progressive or sudden sinus bradycardia in context of high vagal tone, and then a dropped P wave or multiple dropped P waves, and still a wide QRS, that may well be proximal. On the other hand, if it's accelerated sinus rate, sinus tachycardia, followed by wide complex beats, some of the P waves are conducted here. We're talking about second degree AV block. That's more likely distal. All right. So bradycardia very much depends on what was happening before the bradycardia. Exactly. Good way to put it. All right. One of the blocks that we've skipped over is first degree AV block. And that was kind of on purpose because traditionally we've always thought of first degree AV block as something totally benign, but actually it turns out that perhaps it's not so benign. Is first degree AV block ever dangerous? Yeah. So, uh, you know, we did skip over first degree AV block and I kind of feel like that's in practice as well. We do that. Um, and so for the most part, first degree AV block is not dangerous. It tends to be a relatively benign pattern. Now, I will say though that if you have a patient who comes in and it's a new first degree AV block, they didn't have it on previous EKGs that you have access to, and they're coming in for something like syncope or they're coming in for some sort of cardiac related symptom, then I wouldn't ignore the first degree AV block. And so that might be a clue that something is going on with the conduction system. The other entity, and I know this has come up a couple of times now, is Lyme disease. Again, so Lyme carditis can present with just a new first degree AV block. And then that history is going to be important to see if the patient was at risk for getting Lyme disease, getting a tick bite. And then those can degenerate into worse rhythm, so third-degree heart blocks. So those patients need to get admitted. All right, let's do the big review now. So the general approach to bradycardia that we dug into is the following four-stemmed approach. Number one, stable versus unstable. Is there an immediate need to fix the heart rate? Next, symptomatic versus asymptomatic. Then the location of the problem. Is it SA node, AV node, or hyperkinji? And finally, assessing the reversible causes that if treated might preclude the need for pacing, atropine, epinephrine, etc. These four steps might need to be done in parallel. Now, how do you sort out stable versus unstable besides the obvious cardiogenic shock patient? In other words, how do you pick up occult bradycardic shock? The usual signs of poor organ perfusion and hypovolemia, urine output, collapse IVC on pocus, etc. Then there's the patient with the crushing chest pain, severe shortness of breath, or who just syncopized. Those are considered unstable too. And remember, athletes and people who are sleeping can normally have heart rates in the 30s, so the heart rate alone is almost never a sign of instability. Older people are generally less likely to maintain an adequate BP with a really low heart rate. The exception is the patient who is gradually getting more and more bradycardic in front of your eyes. If they have a heart rate of 50, then it decreases to 40, and then 30, and then 20. That is usually a sign of pre-arrest. Okay, so that's stable versus unstable. The next thing is to determine if the bradycardia is causing the symptoms, or if it's the other way around, are the symptoms causing the bradycardia? So in the young, healthy patient who suddenly becomes anxious or experiences pain and becomes pale, nauseated, and bradycardic, that's usually vasovagal bradycardia. The symptoms cause the bradycardia in that case. On the other hand, the older patient with known cardiac disease who suddenly becomes presyncopal and is bradycardic, that's an example of bradycardia causing the symptoms. 
Next is the location of the problem. Is the problem in the atrium, the SA node, or the AV node, or most importantly, is it south of the AV node in the ventricle in the Hisperkinji system? Now, why is this important? Because SA and AV node problems are generally treated with watchful waiting, atropine, or sympathetic meds, while Hisperkinji problems generally need pacing. So, how do you sort this out? Well, simply, there are two things. One, is the QRS narrow, indicating an atrial SA or AV node problem, or is it wide complex, indicating Hisperkinji or an AV nodal junctional escape rhythm? And then secondly, what was there just before the bradycardia? Was it sinus brady, which is more likely to be proximal, or was it an accelerated sinus rate tachycardia, more likely to be distal hisperkinji? When talking about the location of the problem, we also reviewed a few key patterns. So the first one that we reviewed was junctional bradycardia, and really there's three common causes which are toxicity from beta blockers and calcium channel blockers, and less commonly DIG, second, post-valve surgery, and third, inferior MI, especially with right ventricular extension or posterior MI. The next pattern we talked about was the tachybrady syndrome, otherwise known as sick sinus syndrome, which we should be on the lookout for in the older patient with a history of rapid paroxysmal AFib who comes in with syncope and a sinus bradycardia. And the clinical pearl there is that you need to avoid their usual rate-controlling drugs like diltiazem and metoprolol, which will worsen the sinus node disease. Then we talked about the patient with a new, slow, left bundle branch block escape rhythm against a sinus tachycardia. The computer won't measure the heart rate as slow, but this is a special kind of third-degree AV block that's at high risk of degenerating into a life-threatening dysrhythmia. And the last pattern we talked about was torsad with AV block. Torsad is not only about the QT prolongation. When you see a patient with constant torsad, that's usually pretty obvious. But equally as dangerous is the patient who comes in with recurrent syncope or presyncope with an AV block of, say, 35 beats per minute, not too bad, but with short runs of pause-dependent polymorphic tachycardia, those ugly changing QRS complexes. And the key clue here is that the first beat of the tachycardia is on a delayed QT. These patients degenerate into VFib too. The fourth step, which sometimes you need to do in parallel with steps one to three, is ruling out a secondary cause or causes, because sometimes it's multifactorial. So in order of the immediate life threats, there's the big four, hyper-K, cardiac ischemia, the so-called Brady Bunch, beta blockers, calcium channel blockers, and DIG, and lastly, some kind of CNS assault, so a Cushing's response with those deep symmetric T-wave inversions in the anterior leads. All four of these can be diagnosed on a quick history in ECG. Then there's the sort of lesser four to think about once you've ruled out those big four, and those are hypothermia, myxedema coma, sleep apnea, which is really underdiagnosed. And actually, if you can nail down that their bradycardia is really only with their sleep apnea, you can sometimes avoid that patient getting a pacemaker by just treating the sleep apnea. And then finally is infection. So ask about the travel history, you know, dengue, malaria, typhoid. Uh, there's also myocarditis, endocarditis, and finally Lyme disease, which as we mentioned near the end of the podcast, can cause a very long first-degree AV block, which can actually degenerate into a third-degree AV block. The other things that uh, Dr. Dorian had mentioned in terms of causes, uh, think about the post-cardiac surgery patient, and then also think about that uh, vagal response isn't always benign. If you have someone with an ectopic pregnancy, they might have a vaguely mediated bradycardia. Now, we'll have some ECGs to review of all the patterns we talked about here in the show notes, including Dr. Dorian's approach to second-degree heart block. So that wraps it up for part one of our two-part series on bradycardia. We talked about just an approach to bradycardia in this podcast. In part two, we're going to be talking about management. We'll be talking about all the intricacies of atropine, dopamine, epinephrine, isoproterenol, 
transcutaneous pacing, transvenous pacing, and permanent pacemakers. And be sure to save the date for the first ever virtual EM Cases conference, November 11th to 13th. We've already got some of the world's best speakers in EM lined up for you. All the ones you've heard on EM Cases before, Anand Swami Nathan, Sarah Reed, David Carr, Kirsten DeWitt, Salim Rizé, just to name a few. Tickets will go on sale in August. So until next time, take it easy. Thank you.